Good morning. My name is Nikki Sneed, and today's scripture reading is Genesis 13, 1 through 18, which can be found on page 9 of the Black Pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible of your own or know someone who needs one, please feel free to take one of those Pew Bibles with you as a gift. Again, that's chapter Genesis 3, chapter 13, 1 through 18. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great, they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At, the time, at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. The word of the Lord. You may be seated, and children between two and eight years old are released to go to children's church. They will be returning around the time of communion, so, so keep an eye out for your child. As they return, I'd like to make one announcement. We're, uh, we're going to be doing a welcome lunch for newcomers to Chatham. Uh, probably about once a month, once every six weeks, we'll, we'll get into a regular schedule. But the first one is coming up on October 11th. October 11th, right after church on Sunday. We'll have a lunch available for you, and this is a way for us to interact with new visitors. So if you've been Come into Chatham, but maybe you haven't really connected with anyone. Maybe this is your first week. That's fine. Everybody's welcome who's new to sign up. 
You can sign up at the Welcome Center right there in the foyer. Somebody will be there to answer your questions if you have any. But we'd like to get to know you better, see how we can serve you better. You will meet a couple elders and maybe some other leaders from Chatham. You'll be able to ask any questions you have about the church and we'll share our lives with you. So please, uh, if you're new, sign up at the back at the Welcome Center for October 11th Welcome Lunch. We are continuing this series on the life of Abraham, and today we go from failure to faith. Last week we saw how Abraham rejected literally every promise God made and fled to Egypt where he used his beautiful wife Sarah to ensure his own safety and prosperity. It's a pretty low point in Abraham's life. And now, in our chapter, which is the next chapter after that, Abraham returns to God. He sort of renews his commitment to follow this call, returns to the land of promise, and makes a very interesting decision. In this part of the story, Abraham really does act like a spiritual hero. He uh, trusts in God's promises. He puts others, specifically Lot, first. So the question is, which Abraham is the real Abraham? Right? Is it the man of faith of chapter 13 that we just read about? Or is it the miserable failure of chapter 12? Will the real Slim Shady please stand up? I have two people who laughed at that, so I should have, I should have known. Which one is the real Abraham? Which one is the real person? Is it, is it a person of faith? that make these courageous decisions, trust in God, or is it a failure, uh, a miserable failure that just uses others for, for his own safety and, and profit, really? I had a professor at Moody when I was going to school at Moody, uh, Dr. Quiggle. He uh, told this story in class. He said when he was getting baptized, he was a teenager, he was getting baptized at his church, and his youth pastor said, do you have a life verse? Because you know, many Christians have a life verse. And he says, what's your life verse so we can share it with the congregation? So when you get baptized, you can, you can share what is the most important to you from Scripture. And, and the teenager said, you don't really want me to, to do that. Why? The youth pastor asked. Well, my life verse is Second Peter 2.22. The dog returns to its own vomit. <laughs> it's not quite the inspiring Scripture that the youth pastor was hoping for. But for Dr. Quiggle, that kind of defined his view of the Christian life. You know, we always return to our failure. We always, like the dog who returns to, to its vomit, we always return to our sins. We're just kind of stuck in this, in this messy life where we're always dealing with failure and struggle. And many of us, I think, relate to that, don't we? I mean, we, and maybe not to the degree that we would define our life with that verse, but many of us feel that same way, that there's just things in our lives we just don't seem to get over very well. We just continue to do the same things, make the same mistakes. And, and so like Abraham, we can point to moments of spectacular failure in our own lives. And yet, in every Christian's life, there are also moments of triumphant faith. And many of us can look back and along with the miserable failures, we can point to 
to times in our lives when we did trust God, when we made a difficult choice for God's sake, when we have sacrificed, when we did something that was really not expected of us to do, but we did it for the sake of Christ and really exercised faith in God and His promises. So how can we reconcile these two realities? Which one is the real me now, right? Am I uh, the dog that always goes back to its vomit? Or am I that person of faith that makes these courageous decisions? Are we sinners or are we saints? Well, the answer lies in this concept of grace. We've been meditating on that throughout the sermon series. When grace breaks in, when grace comes to your life, what does it do? Well, it accepts you, first of all, and it accepts you as you are, as a failure. You see, God calls failures like Abraham and like me and like you, and He calls us by grace. He doesn't call those who have proven themselves, you see, who have gotten their lives together, who are some sort of a moral or religious standard, who have accomplished great things, and then God calls us. That's not how it works. God calls sinners and failures like Abraham. But that call comes by grace and that same call now changes us into something that we're not. So we're called as failures, but we don't remain as failures. There's a progressive change that happens with us. That same grace that first accepts us as we are, as sinners, also changes us into saints. Now it happens progressively, It happens over time. And so there are many times when we go back to what we used to be and then we move forward again. For many of us, it's not just this line that just goes trends upwards. It's kind of up and down, up and down. But the general direction is up. That grace, if it's real, it does change us. It makes us into different people. God's grace gives courage to cowards, which is why church history is full of stories of martyrs, right? Many of them didn't expect themselves to act the way they did at a time of of trial. God's grace gives faith to idolaters like Abraham. It makes us into loving parents and faithful spouses and considerate friends and good neighbors. Grace has the power to change us. Grace forgives our failures, but it also fuels our faithfulness. Both things are true. We are failures, but we're also being changed into faithful people. And some of us today, there's a group of us that needs a reminder that we are sinners still. Right? That we continue to fail that we are like a dog who returns to its own vomit. Some of us need to drop the pretense of righteousness and just be honest with ourselves and with others and confess our sins to one another. Some of us just need to realize that we are sinners, we are failures, that we have the potential to do things like Abraham did with Sarah. Are you in this group? Have you been pretending to be more righteous than you really are and you need to just say, you know what, I'm going to be honest and 
I'm going to accept that I am a failure, that I am a sinner, that I'm still struggling even though I've been in the faith for decades. I'm still wrestling with some things in my life. And yes, there's at least some vomit in my life still. And just accept that and be honest with others and yourself about it. Are you in that group? Some of us in another group, the other group, need a reminder that God can change us. That God is making us progressively more righteous by the power of His grace. That what is true positionally, positionally we are righteous before God in Christ because of His righteousness. What's true positionally is becoming practically true over time. So we're righteous in Christ. Our status has been changed based on His righteousness. But God is actually making us more righteous. Our life is changing We're making better choices. We're treating others better. And power of God's grace is at work in our lives. So are you in that group? Are you in the group of people that needs to say, you know what, there is hope for me. I can change by God's grace. I don't have to stay in my vomit. I think the many times that I can say the word vomit, I think, makes me happy. But, you know, I don't need to stay in this mess. I I can change. Maybe you're in that group that needs to hear that there's power in God's grace. That yes, you are a failure, but God is working with you. That God is changing you. And you don't have to just accept and and settle for the failures in your life. That there's hope for you. There's power for you to change. So our story today is an example of grace changing a failure. Changing a selfish person. Now... I've alluded to that, but let's, let me explain what is so remarkable about Abraham's behavior in this passage. Let's make sure we understand just how, how different this is, what, what he's doing. Abraham and Lot, you see, they have a problem. They have so many sheep and livestock that there's not enough grass and water to sustain their wealth. So if they stay together, there's just going to be increasingly more and more conflict between the two of them and among the servants for the resources. And, of course, there's also people who live in the land who are using the same resources. So they have a problem, and there's all this quarreling and fighting that's happening between the two, the two clans. And so they have to do something about it. And Abraham does a, a, an unusual thing, very unusual thing for his culture. You see, he's the older one. He's the senior partner here. Here's the uncle... Right? And Lot is the nephew. Lot followed Abraham. Lot is sort of connected his fate to Abraham's fate. And so he's the inferior person here. Relationally, he's not, Lot is not supposed to be given a choice of land. But Abraham, Abraham decides to give him that choice. Alexander McLaren said, the elder and superior gives the younger and inferior the right of option and is quite willing to take the Lot's leavings. Abraham is saying, you know what, if you take that part, I'm just going to take whatever you don't take. And if you think that's better, I'll take whatever you don't take. So Lot is now able to make this choice that's far above his status and his standing in the family. Now, why does Abraham do that? He does that for the sake of the relationship with Lot. He would rather keep peace with his nephew. 
then increase his wealth. And he's saying, listen, essentially, I love you. I want you to be okay. And so for us to stay close to each other, for this relationship to remain close, I'm going to let you choose whichever part of the land you want, and I'll take the other part. I mean, it's remarkable, especially in light of the previous chapter. I mean, remember that in the previous chapter, Abraham uses Sarah for, for the opportunity to increase his wealth. And so he does not treasure the relationship with Sarah in the previous chapter, but here he makes a decision based on his relationship with Lot. Abraham does what a man of faith would do here. Abraham does what Jesus commands his disciples to do in Luke 22. Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. He's doing that. He's the leader He's the greatest, and yet he becomes the youngest. He becomes a servant to Lot. Grace is changing Abraham. Who's the real Abraham? Well, he's a failure who is being changed by God's amazing grace. And so are we. There's going to be times when we'll act like complete failures. And there'll be other times when you will say, Huh, that was a really good decision I made. I really trusted God on that. And it's always a little bit surprising. But you realize that grace has been working in your life, that God has been working in your heart, and now there are new patterns being established in the way you make decisions. You, you start making decisions for the other people's benefit. And you say, you know what, I'm going to be okay. I can give that up because I'd rather keep the relationship with this person than increase my wealth or protect my reputation. I'm okay being humble here. You know what? I can take the blame here. It's okay. A person who's changed by grace is acting like that. Not consistently because we're still wrestling with our natures, but there's more and more of that as grace changing you more and more. There's a progressive sanctification that is happening in our lives. And I I think it's so important to keep those two in balance of saying, yes, we're sinners, And let's be honest with each other about that. Let's confess our sins. Let's acknowledge our failures. But at the same time, let's not just dwell on that. Let's not not just be pessimistic and let's not settle for our failures. Let's be encouraged that God's grace can change us, as it did with Abraham. Well, enough with the introduction. I'll say a lot more about Abraham's decision, but I also want to consider Lot's decision. I want to contrast how those two are making different kinds of decisions here in the text. And then I want to point our attention to another decision that we need to consider today. And the circumstances of that decision are remarkably similar to what we see in our text today. It's, it's that decision that is made by Christ, as we'll see, the Son of God, that allows grace to flow into our lives and enable us to, to make our own decisions by faith and not by sight. So here's our outline. Number one, decision made by sight. That's Lot. He sees something and he takes hold of that. Decision made by sight. Number two, decision made by faith. That's Abraham. And then finally, decision made by Christ. Decision made by sight, decision made by faith, and thirdly, decision made by Christ. All right, let's look at Lot first. Verse 10. 
Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. Verse 11, So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So Lot takes Abraham up on his unexpectedly gracious offer, looks over the land and chooses the Jordan Valley. Now it is true that the area that he's choosing is well watered and lush, so it will be perfect for uh, herding sheep and increasing his wealth. There were also cities that would provide opportunities for, for trade and, and safety. It would allow him to really increase his wealth, increase his safety. This is a good business decision. But I don't think that's all that's happening here. I don't think he's just looking and saying, this is the better land and so I'll do better there and so I'm just going to go there. There's something else that is happening here that is much deeper than a business decision. Lot sees the Jordan Valley and compares it to two things. That's important. He says that it's like the Garden of the Lord and it's like the land of Egypt. Those are two biblically significant places, the Garden of the Lord and Egypt. That's how he sees it. You see, one commentator says that the grammar of this passage lets us see that it's Lot who sees it, though it's his perspective. It's not the narrator anymore. It's, it's almost like it's Lot's own words that are put here. He looks at it and he says, this is like the Garden of the Lord. This is like Egypt. So let's take those two in turn and see why it's so significant that he compares it to these two places. Well, the Garden of the Lord is, of course, the Garden of Eden, the place where Adam and Eve lived, the place from which they were expelled because of their sin. And so Lot looks at the Jordan Valley and he says to himself, this is the perfect place for me. I will be as happy there as Adam and Eve were happy in Eden. I will finally have everything I need, everything I desire. Now listen to one commentator describing his his perspective on the Jordan Valley. The choice reflects a common impulse. Lot sees what seems to be an Edenic place of repose, Edenic like Eden. And he desires to return to the state of original happiness, original happiness. He imagines himself retracing the steps of past generations going back to the innocent abundance of the Garden of Eden in a dream of forgetfulness. Let me read this last sentence again. He imagines himself retracing the steps of past generations, going back to the innocent abundance of the Garden of Eden in a dream of forgetfulness. He's not just looking for a place where he can increase his flocks. He's looking for fulfillment and significance and acceptance and meaning and contentment, all the things that humanity has been grasping for since we have been expelled from the garden of the Lord. Something else is happening here. It's not just a business decision. He looks at the Jordan Valley and he says, I can be 
really happy there. But then he compares it to Egypt. Why Egypt? Well, Egypt also was a well-irrigated area, good for sheep. But more importantly, Egypt in the Bible is a metaphor for unbelief. For example, in the previous chapter, instead of believing in God's promises of provision, during a famine, Abraham goes to Egypt to find food. So he doesn't trust God, he goes to Egypt. This will happen again and again for the people of Israel. It seems like every time Israelites doubt God's promises, they look to Egypt for help. Egypt is a place where the people of God attempt to get what they need without God. When Lot likens the Jordan Valley to Egypt, it's a biblical tell, you see it's a hint for us, that is making a decision by sight and not by faith. You see, Egypt only looks good, but it never actually delivers the happiness that it promises. Several times in the Bible, Egypt is compared to a staff made of a flimsy river reed. It may look strong, but it can never bear the weight of anyone actually leaning on it. So it seems like a, a sturdy stick of wood, but it's, it's a reed. And so when you, when you put your weight on it, at best it'll just break and it can't fulfill its purpose. You can't use it as a staff. But at worst, it will break and it will pierce your hand. It will actually hurt you as you're trying to put your, put your weight on it. This is from Isaiah and Ezekiel and other passages. And so this is what Egypt does. Israel trusts Egypt, and at the, at the moment where they need Egypt, Egypt never comes through. Whether it's trying to protect Israel from a foreign invasion, whether it's Joseph coming to Egypt, bringing his whole family there, and then they become slaves there and get even worse off than they were when they started. Egypt keeps failing Israel. And so it's a tell for us that Lot is looking at the Jordan Valley and and he's envisioning this place which is like the garden of the Lord, but he doesn't want the Lord there. He, he's making the decision by sight, saying, this looks good, so it will be good for me. I will be as happy as Adam and Eve, but I don't want God to be a part of that. Remember, he is separating himself from Abraham, from the promise of God to give the land that God has designed for them, for that family. Lot is leaving He's turning to something else. He's looking to something else for that fulfillment and, and that blessing, that prosperity that God promised to them. And it, it's never going to work. We'll see in his life that, as you read the story, that it doesn't work. You know, pretty soon, in fact, the next chapter we'll look at next week, a war breaks out and, and Lod gets caught up right in the middle of it. There's various kings from Sodom and Gomorrah and others are fighting with other kings and he gets kidnapped with all his family. All this stuff happens because he has identified himself now with a different tribe, different people. Those people are wicked and they're, they're, they go against God and so judgment is going to come on Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot will barely escape it. In fact, he will lose his wife in the midst of that judgment. And so we see how the choice that he's making by sight, because it looks good, it's, it's lush and well-watered, is going to turn out to be very destructive to him. Now there's a modern illustration of that. Uh, when we were moving here 
from Chicago. We, we got the biggest truck we could rent without me getting a commercial license and, and loaded all our stuff in it. And I was, frankly, nervous about driving it. You know, it was just so huge. I'm not the best of drivers anyway, and, you know, give me a big truck to drive. And so every time, and I had to pick it up at another place in the city and then drive it home, and then we had to go through the city to get on the highway to get here. And every time we would go under a bridge or in a, you know, any sort of tunnel, in the, especially in the city because they're so low, I would just be so worried that, that I'm just going right, to run into it and, and, and won't be, you know, it will bring this destruction on the truck and my family. You know, so every time I would just, just kind of cringe, you know, and I'm thinking, ah, am I going to fit in, in there? It just seems so low. And, and so luckily nothing bad happened. But, but U-Haul warns you of those things, you know. <clears throat> as, as you read instructions when you rent the truck, it tells you, make sure you pay attention to the signs that will give you what the clearance is and know how tall this truck is so that if you can't squeeze through, don't, don't try, right? Trust the promise on the sign. Do it by faith and not by sight. Because you know, and you've seen those videos and pictures, have you not? I think it was a time when online you would see them everywhere. It's just these trucks stuck under bridges and this train stuck in tunnels, you know. Now, how did that happen? Every time the driver decided that well, it looks good, right? I, I think I'm going to be able to squeeze in there by sight. You see, they made an estimation. It was wrong. turns out to be wrong. They didn't trust the sign. They just thought, looks good, we're going to make it. That's what Lot is saying. Looks good, I'm going to be happy there, not how it works, right? We'll see. It's destructive. He barely escapes with his life, the judgment that comes eventually on Sodom and Gomorrah. So the question for us is, what is your Jordan Valley? What are you looking to and saying, I'll be happy there, just like Adam and Eve in the garden of the Lord. He will give me all that I desire. He'll provide everything I need here. What is it that you look into to restore that Edenic happiness? Is it your career? If I get promoted, if I get maybe a different job, that job, I will be happy. It just looks well-watered and lush. And so if I get it, I will get what I'm after in life. Is it a relationship? I mean, our culture is, is obsessed with, with romantic relationships being fulfilling and, given, and fulfilling that promise of, of utter happiness, right? I mean, all these movies that really resonate with us because we're looking for that fulfillment, these stories of two people getting together and overcoming difficulties and then finally they connect to such a level that they become godlike almost, right? There's this, this experience that changes them completely. They become completely happy from then on. Like Jerry Maguire, that older movie, I think, right? Probably not a hip movie to quote anymore, but, but you remember, right? Tom Cruise, and he, he comes, and, 
And, and, and in this, this very intense, I've, I've looked at the clip in preparation for this, so I remember it well. There's this intense scene, right? And Tom Cruise says, you complete me. Remember that? And Dorothy says, shut up, you had me at hello. Do you remember that? Or any other movie you want to quote. I mean, it's, there's, movies are full of those scenes where it's, it's just this connection that, that promises this eternal happiness. And it doesn't happen, does it? As much as we enjoy marriage, as much as we enjoy friendships, as much as we enjoy children, as much as we maybe feel fulfilled at work, it's not at the level of Edenic happiness, is it? It doesn't quite get there ever. And so there's always the next thing, the next step that we're looking for. So what is your Jordan Valley that you're hoping, if I get there, if I get this person, if I get that promotion, if I make that decision, if things just go right for me in that area, then I will be completely happy. And yet as you look at the Jordan Valley, are you also looking at it as Egypt, where God isn't? You're choosing by sight. You're saying, I can be happy if I get this, regardless of how God is involved in this. And so I can be happy in this relationship. I mean, why do Christians or professing Christians marry unbelievers that care nothing about their Lord? What happens there? How is that decision being made? It's made by sight. When you say, this person looks so good that it's like the Jordan Valley, it's like the garden of the Lord for me. Turns out it's more like Egypt. God isn't in that relationship. We have to be careful when we consider these things that look so good, and yet God isn't a part of that decision. So we choose by sight only to, to realize that it's a destructive choice ultimately. Cornelius Platinga, who taught at Calvin College in Michigan, he says this, he says, Human desire, deep and restless and seemingly unfulfillable, keeps stuffing itself with finite goods, but these cannot satisfy. If we try to fill our hearts with anything besides the God of the universe, we find that we are overfed but undernourished. And we find that day by day, week by week, year by year, we are thinning down to a mere outline of a human being. As you try to fulfill yourself with Egypt, with the Jordan Valley, but it's not God who's fulfilling you. You may feel full, you may feel overfed, but you will be undernourished and you will die a slow death without God. This message is important to the church because so many of us believers that identify with Christ and we proclaim His name on Sundays, yet in the rest of our lives we are really seeking things by sight. While we're making decisions about our careers, about our relationships, not based on our faith in God and the gracious call to us, but on what looks good, what appears desirable, what promises to fulfill us, regardless of whether God is involved or not. That's how Lot thinks, that's how many of us think, and hopefully this comes as a, as a convicting thing, as a correction to our lives, and saying, let us make decisions by faith, as Abraham exemplifies in our passage. So let's look at the decision made by faith. 
verse 14, the Lord says to Abram, to Abraham, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. It's important to see that this decision that Abraham makes is made between the two altars. Remember, he returns from Egypt and he, he, he goes to the altar he had already built. And, and he renews his faith. He renews his commitment to God. And then the story ends with verse 18. He settles by the oaks of Mamre at Hebron and there he builds another altar to the Lord. His life is now defined by this commitment in faith to God who calls him out graciously to live this different kind of life. The altars signify where his heart is now. And so he makes this decision not by sight, because if he were to make the decision by sight, he would have chose the Jordan Valley. It's a desirable place. It's better than what he's left with. And yet because he's making it by faith, He's trusting that God would provide for him the land that God had promised, regardless of what happens with Lot. And for the sake of the relationship with Lot, he's willing to sacrifice his wealth to maintain his faith in God and his promise. By faith, he waits on the Lord to give him Canaan in his timing. A confirmation of the promise comes right after Lot leaves. So Abraham makes the decision by faith, and then God appears to him, and God tells Abraham to lift up his eyes. So presumably he's on a mountain and he can see far. And Abraham is, is now, God tells him to look north and south and east and west. Look as far as you can see. And God says, all of this I will give to you. You see, his faith is now renewed. God says, you were right to trust me to give you the land that I wanted you to have and not to take hold of the Jordan Valley like Lot did. And then God says something really surprising, I think. He says, arise and walk the length and breadth of the land that I will give you. Well, typically, in the ancient Near Eastern country, you would do that when you bought a piece of land. When you bought something as a new owner, you would walk the borders of the land to sort of establish your ownership, to sort of see what the land is like, to see all the corners of the land. Abraham does that before the land is his. God says, go walk as if it is your land. Go walk the length and breadth of the land that I will give you. And Abraham does that in faith. The land isn't his yet, but he walks on it as if it is his. As if God had already given it to him. Because God promised the land. Abraham trusts God and because God said it, it's as good as if it's his land already. You see? So Lot sees something desirable, goes for it, leaves God behind. Abraham says, I'm going to stick with God's promise and I'm going to make a difficult decision to benefit my nephew, but I will trust that God will give what he promised to me in his time. And so God says, your faith is such that you can walk this land 
as if it is already yours. Abraham looked not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's our struggle, isn't it? Aren't we all wrestling with that? Will I trust God's promises and prefer things that are unseen, like a relationship, like a promise sometime in the future? I can't see it. What is more important? What we see or what God says? That's our struggle. Years after Abraham, Israel will struggle to keep the land of promise, having already been given it, right? And after Joshua, all those nations were conquered and they, they can now possess the land. But during the times of the judges, they keep, they keep doubting God. They keep worshiping other gods in addition to Yahweh. They keep questioning God's promises. And the, the phrase that keeps coming up and up and up again in the book of Judges is, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see, they, they lived by sight, not by faith. And they, they had a hard time keeping the land that was given to them by God's promise, requiring their faith, because they were looking, they were seeing, they were saying, well, this God seems to help their people, and, and these people seem to be okay. And so they continued to make these decision, decisions by sight and not by faith. So how do you make decisions? By sight or by faith? Do you do what is right in your own eyes? Do you choose what looks good to you? Or do you trust in the promises of God? Now what about getting a job, right, that puts you in a compromising position, maybe doesn't allow you to honor the Sabbath and to be with your, with your family? What about dating and marrying someone who's not committed to Jesus? That's when faith really starts mattering in those life decisions when you have to say, am I going to sacrifice something I see for the sake of the unseen reality of God that is eternal? Am I going to trust God when He says that if you choose by sight, it's going to be destructive to you. It's not going to be good for you. Trust me in my promises, even if you can't see it. Nah, that faith needs to kick in right there. We say, ah, it looks good to me, but God told me it's not as good as it looks. So I'm not going to take it. I'm going to trust God that His promises are true. That He will do what He said He will do. That His word is more trustworthy than my perception of reality. And so we make difficult decisions, sacrificial decisions. Decisions that seem to set us back in life. And yet all the while rejoicing that we are close to God who will, of course, He will deliver on His promises. When um, we read the story of, of Abe, this chapter, a few weeks ago during family worship at, at my house, I asked the girls why Abraham acted so differently in chapter 13 because chapter 12 was a low point. And let me tell you, I had to explain what happened exactly in chapter 12 to my children. And so chapter 13 comes around. I'm saying, look at, look at Abraham. Look, he's making this decision based on faith. Why is he doing that? And Elena says, well, he probably felt so bad about being a coward in chapter 12 that he's kind of trying to make up for that in chapter 13. There's truth to that. I think his sin was exposed. 
I think he realized that he was probably a bigger failure than he thought he was. And so, when you come to chapter 13, that new reality of his sinfulness matters now. And so, he is careful to notice that he has those tendencies to make decisions by sight and to exploit other people for his own benefit. And so he makes a different decision. But there's another thing that happened that my daughter, I don't think, saw all that well, but maybe in time. Something happened. God was faithful in the midst of Abraham's unfaithfulness. God made a decision to stay true to Abraham even when Abraham didn't stay true to God. God provided. Remember in chapter 12, God protected God took them out. In fact, they left more wealthy than when they went to Egypt in spite of their sin. And so God was faithful. God was, was gracious. And that decision to still stick with Abraham in the midst of his failure must have played into Abraham's decision in chapter 13. He must have been, at least in part, to a certain degree, impressed with God's faithfulness. He said, well, if God is like this, and this is what I want my children to learn and grow in, realizing that God is faithful all the time, that God is gracious all the time. And Abraham, having seen that, having had an experience of God's grace, a new experience of God's grace in Egypt when he failed, but God didn't fail, now he is making a different decision. Now he is acting on faith and not on his sight. He saw God be gracious. He saw God's blessing regardless of his performance. And now, based on that, he's making a decision by faith. God's decision to protect and provide for him and Sarah enabled Abraham to live differently. And so let's finish our sermon with looking at the decision that can empower us to live differently too, to walk by faith and not by sight. There's an expression of grace that is definitive. There's an expression of God's faithfulness that can change any decision we make, that fuels our faithfulness, that allows grace to flow into our lives and change us. There was another person who lifted up his eyes. Remember, Abraham lifts up his eyes to look at the land in every direction that God has given him. Lot lifts up his eyes to look at the Jordan Valley and to see the garden of the Lord. There was another person who lifted up his eyes and saw a tremendous, wealthy, rich area that was his for the taking. This is Matthew 4, when the devil tempts our Savior. Verse 8 in Matthew 4. The devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. What is the temptation here? Is it just the wealth? Is it just the power? No. Satan is saying, Jesus, choose the garden of the Lord without the Lord. He's saying, look at this. You can be happy as the king of this world as I am. You don't need God to be fulfilled, to be content, 
to find meaning, to find joy in life. You don't need God for that. Reject God's will for you. Reject His promises and embrace this. What you can see now, look, it's right here. That's the temptation. And what does Jesus say? He says, be gone, Satan. I am not willing to leave God out of it. He's saying, I don't want the garden of the Lord without the Lord. I don't want to go to Egypt where I can take what I see and yet lose God. And so Jesus chooses by faith based on what he can't, he can't see God's promises. He can't see God's will. He can't see God's love for him. But he's choosing not by sight, but by faith. The decision to say, I will sacrifice this. And ironically, what's by right, his. I mean, it is his by right. He's the creator of the world. But he's saying, I'm going to forego this. I'm going to sacrifice this. Why? For the sake of the relationship with my people. He says, I'd rather have peace with my people. I'd rather bring people into a reconciled relationship with God than take what I can see and make a decision by sight. Jesus trusted the Father's promises. He trusted that through His sacrifice, and He's starting to make the sacrifice now by rejecting Satan's offer. Through His sacrifice, God's people will be saved. So he didn't do what looked good. He acted on faith in the Father's will. Now there was another mountain, of course, that Jesus had to climb. He was taken to a hill outside of the city where he was nailed to the cross to bring peace to the people of God. He suffered the consequences for all of our choices by sight. You see, every time that I chose something by sight, that was a consequence Jesus died for. And Jesus embraced the life of a human being that was expelled from the garden of the Lord. He embraced this life of seeking significance and meaning and acceptance and contentment and fulfillment. But He refused to strive for the garden of the Lord without the Lord. He refused to to choose by sight and that faith led him to the cross. His decision to pursue relationship with us at the cost of his life is what makes us different. The cross itself is the ultimately convincing confirmation of God's promise to bring us home. Not by returning us to the garden. That would have been enough. But by building us a new city. Do you see how in the gospel, God isn't just restoring what we lost, but He's given us even more than we can hope for. Now that's good, right? That's, that's good news, right? That God says, I'm not just going to return, return you to the to the old garden. I'm going to build a whole new city for you. And in this city, there will be no need for sun or moon to shine on it because the glory of God 
will give it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. Friends, that's our destiny. That's our promise. That's the Lamb that God is going to give to us. And so as we wrestle in our lives' decisions, are we going to make them on the basis of what God is promising to us, or are we going to make them on the basis of what we see, what looks good? Please, work it out in your own lives. All of us are faced with decisions this week. How are we going to make them? Are we going to trust God by faith, or are we going to choose by sight? Let's pray, and then we'll come to the table. We'll come forward to take communion. As we do that, this is your arise and walk the breadth and length of God's promise to you. This is how we would exercise that scripture, and we would actually physically do that, claiming God's promise, saying we are going to make decisions by faith, remembering what God has done for us on the cross and in the empty tomb. So let's pray that our hearts are in tune with our bodies as we go to take communion together. Father, we are thankful people. Once again, realizing how good the promises of the gospel are, how unexpectedly good they are, not just restoring what was lost, but giving us even more, building a city for us providing access to God forever through Christ, giving us the Holy Spirit now to progressively change us into people who are practically righteous as well as positionally righteous. Lord, we remember what it cost Jesus to bring us so we could partake of these promises. We remember that He lived a life of a perfect human being, that he lived in the same temptations and the same struggles that we live, having many opportunities to choose by sight, and yet always choosing by faith, without sin. And then that perfect human being, God in its, in, in, in its divinity and its full nature, God and man, together in one person, bearing the punishment for the sins of the world. Arising victoriously from the grave, these promises now ring true to us. If Jesus did what he did, the promises must be true. If Jesus rose from the dead, we too will rise. If Jesus has now appropriated what was unseen, we too will grasp these realities one day. Even now, they are becoming more and more real to us. Lord, we praise you for what you've done in Jesus. We remember what he's done for us. We confess that we are sinners, and yet we've been made saints in Christ. And we pray for your Holy Spirit now to work in our hearts. This table isn't for everyone those of us that are not your children, that have not been called by your grace and changed by your grace, we shouldn't be coming forward. But the offer of the gospel is to everyone. And so for those of us that have never experienced grace, I pray that we will experience it now. 
that we will take Jesus by faith, that we'll take Him as our Lord, as our Rescuer, as our Deliverer, as the new Adam who has undone what the old Adam did. Lord, I pray that we as believers, as we come to this table, we will do so not as an empty ritual, but do it by faith. Taking things that don't look that good, pieces of bread and juice and cups, and yet knowing that there's a greater reality, the presence of Christ, the promises of the new covenant that are given to us in Him by faith. The Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I encourage you to come forward as we sing. You can take the elements back to your seats if you need more time to meditate, or you can take it right up here and leave the cup in the basket provided for you. But do it in faith. Arise and walk the length and the breadth of God's promises for you.